0: We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence.
1: With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond.
0: And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. Uh, today we're joined by David Bevan, who is a senior research software engineer, and Dr. Kazra Hassini, who is a research data scientist, both of whom work in the Alan Turing Institute's research engineering group. We're gonna be talking to them about one of the Turing's major research projects in the digital humanities, known as Living With Machines, which has taken a fresh look at the history of the industrial revolution with data-driven approaches. Dave and Kazra, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks very much for having us. Thank you.
1: Um, so Dave, I'm going to jump in with the first question. Um, can you tell us a bit before we go into the Living with Machines project itself, um, a bit about
2: digital humanities as a field? Um, is this a relatively new discipline? It's not. I think that digital humanities tends to uh, trace its roots back to, uh, I think, the 1960s, and Father Busa worked with IBM. So Father Busa was very interested in understanding um, religious writings, and uh, I can't quite... Okay, at the point. Um, and he worked with IBM to take the text of the religious writings and put it into a concordance program so he could see where various things were mentioned and in what context they were so there's a long tradition of sort of putting texts into the machine and being able to ask questions so digital humanities as a term probably was coined let's say in the 2000s but prior to that it was uh, humanities computing computing for the humanities things like that so there's a long tradition of people mm, being able to look at their discipline in a reproducible way using data and really sort of those methods that you look at things at a larger scale than an individual could in the back of a library with a handful of books.
0: I had a question. So do you think the term digital humanities is a bit scary for people in humanities? Because there's sometimes that um, separation uh, between humanities and more computational
2: groups i'll accept it can be but i really don't want it to be and some of that i i wonder whether that's just generations of scholars being taught by you know generations of scholars that have happened in the past at university and and so it takes a while for some of these digital techniques to become mainstream i do not think digital methods are can help you answer all the questions in the humanities. And there absolutely is a role for um, the Lone Scholar. There is a role for individual perspectives, but there is also a great opportunity to ask new questions. So I think what digital humanities does, it's not taking away from the humanities, it's actually adding to it. And it's forming new collaborations like Living With Machines, where we've got historians, linguists... Um, curators, geospatial experts, demographers, all coming together with different perspectives. So the digital gives us a way of talking to each other in a way that perhaps some of the traditional disciplines that are quite well-defined don't.
1: Yes, and I'm imagining as well that a lot of people in the humanities, though they have their own ways of doing research, whether they're a historian or someone researching art or literature, it's probably quite different from the kind of research practices we're more familiar with. In I don't know, I, I guess if we were we we're being mean, we'd call it the hard sciences. But <laughs> but not to not to suggest that the humanities is uh, any less rigorous in their research practices.
2: <laughs> and it's not. And I think we need to think of, you know, quite often we hear the word science when actually I think people mean research. And and in the UK. People are quite sensitive to it. I think I think on the continent, um, science can mean research a little bit more uh, fluidly, um, yeah. But maybe Kazwa's got some good uh, thoughts on this one too.
3: Um, well, my background is in uh, science and geophysics, um, and I joined the Living with Machines in 2019. And since then, I, I, I guess I don't really have a clear answer to what digital humanities is. But at the end, it's really using digital methods, digital techniques. This can be visualization, data science, machine learning, or any other methods, and apply that to humanities fields. Uh, which I totally agree with what Dave said, that uh, these methods actually open new avenues, new ways to to understand those data sets. Uh, but I am mean, comparing it with like geophysics, uh, I guess I guess it's as rigorous as those fields in terms of research.
1: Nice, that's, that's good to hear. Um, well, on that note, um, can you uh, tell us a bit now uh, about the Living with Machines projects that you mentioned, uh, Dave, uh, at the Turing? What, what are the goals of this project? What are you hoping to achieve? And, and how sort of big and all-encompassing is it? Because it is one of the Turing's big projects.
2: Oh, it's a biggie, and um, it's a five-year project. There, I counted. I was doing slides the other day, and there are twenty-eight amazing people, past and present, involved in this, from you know lots of different disciplines. And that's something we really proud ourselves on. And Ruthanne at the PI is really, really keen to make sure people understand that the project is is this sort of radical collaboration, as she puts it. So we're still learning how we make the most out of our interdisciplinary collaboration and how we work together. And, and those exciting touch points where between the bits of sort of established knowledge, we find new opportunities. So uh, we're very proud to be Arts and Humanities Research Council funded. It was one of the strategic priority fund projects. And certainly in terms of humanities funding it's a big one Um, and we started in 2019 and there are six institutions but certainly run by the Turing and there are as I said there's everything from research software engineers to data scientists curators computational linguists historians geographers and you know we're there to look at the industrial revolution which has been well studied but there are lots of nuances that we can begin to get into and ask new questions. And I'll happily sort of talk you through some of those later. But to set the scene, we are looking at the years 1780 to the 1920s. And a lot happened, certainly in Britain, as it industrialised um, at that point in time. And we're there to sort of look at that, to see how the country and the people in it really have changed. So
0: what is... Um important or relevant about those about that time frame that you that you mentioned um why why study that uh period of history instead of just you know last century before yeah
2: that that is the period where the country underwent industrialization so yeah. towns and cities formed um in a way that and, and, had, and the schools began to focus on them. Transport opened up. So one of the amazing pieces of work that Kazra is doing is looking at how the land and how the sort of space in the country changed due to the arrival of the railway, how that was positive in terms of people travelling about, but also negative in terms of the way it carved its way through established um, parts of town. And, and we can see that, even where the Alan Turing Institute is based in the British library, the area around that and the arrival of the railway there really went through bits of London um, and divided communities. Um, So a lot of change was happening. Um, People were more connected. Language was changing rapidly. Um, Newspapers were taking off. So news was traveling rapidly. Just everything, just society just went up a notch. And, you know, we can think of it as being it's often sold as a very, very positive thing, but it wasn't always, you know, people in rural communities lost their jobs. Um, The factory turned people into workers and they had to, you know, watch the time all, you know, watch the time all the time. Um, And a lot of change sort of happened to synchronize the country. And we lost a lot too. So we're, we're sort of looking at some of the nuances there. Kazra, you'll want to add plenty of stuff because I think we see different parts of the project. So Kazra and I are really good to um, discuss this with you because we, we're at sort of different ends of bookmarking the project.
3: Um, well, uh, I guess you summarized the main points very nicely. I mean, I, I'm happy to answer any specific questions about any of these strands of work, but 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 yeah, but basically uh, maybe one thing that I can add is uh, in the Living with Machines project, um, Uh, one of the main components are are the data sets that we're working with and these data sets to answer some of the questions uh, that uh, Dave uh, talked about uh, and those data sets they range from newspapers census and also maps uh, map sheets that they they were surveyed and published different period of time and one part of uh, the Living Machine's project is to analyze these methods, for example, for the text, for the newspaper, using natural language processing and computational linguist methods. And uh, on the other hand, for the, for the maps, using computer vision techniques to extract information from them. And in a way, probe those transitions, those changes that Dave talked about.
1: Where do these, um, these data sets come from, uh, the maps and the, the text that you mentioned?
2: So we're very, very fortunate to be working with the British Library and their partners, Find My Past, to have access to the British newspaper archive. And for our time period, we've got sort of roughly speaking 25 plus terabytes of historic newspapers that we have access to. It's in, and that's not the images. So there are the beautiful images of the pages, this is the, the kind of markup, the, the layout, if you like, the pagination and the textual content we have access to. And we've just sort of finished a major stage of marshalling and getting ready that data. And we haven't actually added it up yet, but my best estimates are like this. I think in there, we are going to have something like 145 million articles and about 118 billion words worth of content. And to put that into perspective, if you assume a novel is 100,000 words, that's over 1 million novels. And you would have to read something like 32 novels a day for 100 years to get through the content. Yeah. <laughs> and we're asking the computer to do that in less than 100 years and to remember what it read on day one so you know we, be a
0: very busy weekend
2: <laughs> it, it could be a busy weekend um yeah and and it is a very busy time for the computers as well not um, all of us
1: have these uh, stellar reading skills
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's not just that so that's the text and in many respects that's it's got some challenges around the ocr which i could dig into but actually connecting one of the central tenants to the pro- project is kind of connecting place so if you can identify a place in the text can we also understand it from the census or those beautiful ordnance survey maps Kazra, that we're getting from the national library of scotland tell us about them because they are stunning
3: uh, yeah for, so for for the maps there are actually different um entities that they digitized maps so uh, british library has done uh, some digitizations, but uh, for one of our works that we're working on now, uh, we are using the maps digitized by the National Library of Scotland (NLS), and um, it, it, it's, it's amazing. So basically, you can also access these maps via their uh, web page, and you can download the maps very easily and work with them. Very high-resolution maps, actually. And uh, the maps that we're working on now—they they are six inches to a mile and. Um, uh, they basically cover the whole England, Wales, and Scotland. Uh, they were surveyed and published at different times, like towards the end of nineteenth century, beginning of twentieth century. And we are basically trying to extract information from those. But but we have access to these data sets at different scales and different editions of the maps.
1: Mm, yeah, sounds sounds like the uh, Living Machines project as a whole has access to quite a wide variety of like different interesting historical sources of data. Um, I'm just like wondering, um, thinking still about the big picture and then, and then we'll ask a bit more about what you guys are working on specifically. So what are the sorts of questions about the 19th century that we're hoping to answer with this kind of big historical data, if you will, whether it's the newspapers or the maps or whatever else that uh, a historian using like traditional research methods on their own who obviously can't spend hundreds of years looking, reading through all those newspapers um what what kind of questions can we try to answer that that historian wouldn't be able to answer on his or herself
2: i think first of all i'll sort of it's worth pointing out that newspapers aren't the, the independent source of it, all the information uh, <laughs> no, they are just a very very Convenient data wise They are a hundred percent factual, though. In their claims, that I believe they I mean, are. They are just. They like wouldn't Fox lie. Mm, yeah. No, certainly not. They they do not have political leanings, and we can get into that <laughs> later. um I think one of the benefits of doing these things at scale is that we, you know, quite often a historian might perform a number of case studies on particular places that might be really good exemplars for the wider scene or they may be extremes we can begin to look at the nuances across everywhere because we can sort of if if our digital methods are akin to the traditional scholarship Mm -hmm. then we can begin to roll that out at scale and i think that gives us an advantage because we are looking in places that may not be the obvious places so the kinds of things we're looking at um begin to understand, um, you know, the the flow of trade and goods between parts of the UK and how that influenced the growth of cities. You know, for example, you know, Sheffield is known for its steel industry. Um, How, you know, place and the demographics of place and the people there have changed, as I said, as industry comes, good and bad. Um, We're looking at some of the nuances of Of language, how different classes, if you like, of people, but certainly different individuals in different places and across time, how they think of mechanization, and really specific bits. So you know, we want to answer the question: What what is industrialization? What is a machine? And if you ask our newspapers, you know, nine times out of ten, a machine is a sewing machine but we know there are, I mean, there are so many adverts for sewing machines out there. Um, But we can begin to question some of the contemporary autobiographies that were written by mainly men, frankly. Um, But we can begin to critique that and see how representative they are of the whole picture. So it's really sort of quite broad in a sense, but we're trying to get everywhere. And I think as we begin to develop our knowledge of the, um, of the sources, we can begin to ask really nuanced questions as we hop from our different data sources. So can we identify place in a map? Can we understand the sorts of people that were living there from the census? Can we understand from the newspapers the conflicting views of mechanization there? You know, the factory owners think this is great. We can produce things at a greater profit and we can move them across the country easier. But the individuals are having to move home, move to the city, live in poorer conditions sometimes, and have their life controlled by the factory clock. So we can begin to look at the same event through the lens of different people and different perspectives. And I think that plural nature to our history, the fact that there is no one truth, there are different perspectives, is so important. And this is something that, data science and AI, you know, can really stop and listen to us as we sort of show how something can be described so many different ways. That's so important to me, at least.
0: You're you're meaning to say that there's more than, you know, men that did things in the past.
2: (laughs) there may well have been strong women in the past too
0: no, so besides this you know wonderful discovery, <laughs> this is a question for both of you. What is it that you found the most interesting uh, that you've found out with by do, by doing this work um, of living with machines I think I blue screened our guests <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, wow. Um, I'm going to let Casagrow first, mainly because I'm still thinking.
3: Um, well, okay. It, it's it's a difficult question. I mean, as Dave said, it's a big project. There are like 20, 25 people involved. Um, and uh, there are also different types of projects, uh, ty- types of fi- findings in the machines. But um, for me, if I have to pick one, I guess I will go with uh, our animacy paper, which is somehow related to what also Dave was talking about. And I picked this because um, there are like 10 others on the paper with very different backgrounds. So it's very, very close to, to how we work in the living machines project. So we have uh, computational linguists, data scientists, software engineers, curators, historians on that paper. Um, and That that paper, I mean, the actual title is Living Machines, a study of atypical animacy, if I'm not mistaken. And the idea of that paper is to uh, basically propose a new method to uh, determine if an entity was represented uh, as animate or not. And, uh, so, so to, to, to just clarify, this, uh, 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 this is actually one example from the paper that, uh, well I, I don't know if I can remember it exactly actually, but it's um, they were told that the blank stopped working. And the exercise well, that we did in the, in the paper was to uh, fill, fill uh, this blank, to so basically complete this sentence. And what, what we uh, noticed in that paper was that uh, if you use the language model, which is, well, basically tells us uh, how, to feel, how to complete the sentence. If you use a language model that was trained on text before 1850, the words would be more around the uh, man, uh, slaves, prisoners, and et cetera. But as we go towards the end of 19th century, the, the language model would uh, complete that sentence using machines, for example.
2: Or mm-hmm. engine to stop
3: working. So basically, it's it's how to detect how people started to talk about objects and if they are uh, they uh, represented those in text as animate or not. And I guess that was it. That was the interesting piece of work. And uh, we have not applied it to all the newspaper articles, but that's that's what we're working on now. In that paper, we d- developed this new new method to look at this
1: it's really interesting that it's you're using this language model to complete a sentence to then almost like find out what was the commonly used phrase in the data that the model was trained on in the first place but then it sort of seems like a roundabout way of doing that but then I can't think how else I would do that so like other than just searching for keywords but then I guess this 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 sort of um grounds it in the structuring of the sentence itself or something like that and maybe that's maybe that allows you to pick out those those words that are specifically um I don't know does it allow it to like contextualize what your findings more perhaps
3: Um, So I guess what is interesting about language models is that you can use it to discover new things in the text. Mm -hmm. So the things that you were not thinking about beforehand. So if we do pattern matching, you start with some words, let's say start with engine, machine, and etc. And as you said, we go through the text and search buttons. But with language model, we can start to find some of those let's say hidden words or some some words that we are not hidden words, but some of the words that we are not thinking about them Mm. uh, when doing pattern matching and try to extract those information. For example, what language model allows us to do is to say, what are the most similar words to machine in this, uh, in this data set? And some of those words uh, we, we didn't even know about or didn't think about. Those words, And I guess that's that's one of the main advantages of using such methods compared to pattern matching. Well,
1: it's interesting that the, the example you gave there in that the, the sentences that were later on in uh, the models trained on the later on uh, uh, data were, were filling in with machine. The early ones were not, you might have expected it to fill it in with man, but then you also found that it was filling it in with prisoner. Which I don't know, maybe is a bit like I was like, ah, oh, okay, so the prisoners were being used for labour. <laughs> <The Sure. machines. laughs> I mean, not that shocking, but it's I guess it's a little, it's it's a little bit unexpected, I guess, depending on what, how you're thinking about it.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: and I think that's that's
3: exactly why it's interesting to use such kind of methods. Is that uh, in a way it's like AI-assisted research, mm-hmm. so we see such kind of uh, words like prisoner, and you're wondering, does it even make sense? And you can go then and do your pattern matching and et cetera to see where in the text they were talking about that. And maybe it was a mistake from the model. Maybe we just don't have enough data, or maybe our model is not robust to predict those specific words, but it gives us an opportunity to to look at those and do close reading. So basically, combining the data science machine learning methods with the
2: humanities expertise or historian expertise. And could you argue that it helps remove some of the individual bias? So if you, if you had to list the dictionary words that you were looking for, what you've just described seems to supplement that with something that's true to the actual data that you're looking at.
3: Yeah, absolutely. But, but uh, if your data set is biased, then your model is also... So, so it removes some of the biases, uh, I guess the individual biases, but s- still you need some additional steps to remove the biases in the dataset itself. Because our language models, they, they are trained on, on... For example, if you uh, train a language model that only talks about men because we talk about this, then we would not even have to, uh, some specific words in, in this model. So, so we cannot remove the bias of the data set using language model, but maybe we can detect those.
2: And our newspaper data set is biased. It is so skewed mm. in so many different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess if you um, train the
1: model on, I don't know, like Farmers Weekly versus if you train it on like the, the Telegraph, <laughs> I don't know if Farmers Weekly is a real thing, but... You get my point. You're going to get very different answers going out to those. Uh, what the language model uh, suggests, I
2: guess. Yeah, exactly. And our language changes over time as well. So you know, Barbara McGilvery is our expert on that semantic change, on how how words shift focus. And you know, the Victorians loved a report of a of an accident. They liked a bit of gore. And more often than not, you find all these melancholy accidents. And I'm not sure that's a phrase we would use in today's reporting. I know what they're getting at. they they mean a sad, a tragic accident. Right. But <laughs> melancholy is the word that tends to get used. So if you didn't know that and you Drastic. didn't use the kind of model that Kazra is talking about, mm. you might miss these occurrences. So it's an important sort of checkpoint. I think that's
0: also a big thing about the, this... Um, that science doesn't have. Science tends to be more inside boxes. Well, language and all of these things have nuances and tones of voice even, even open newspaper, it's not tone of voice, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, you're, you're gonna have a piece that is gonna be upset, um, you know, raging against something. is gonna have a very different tone than the piece pro that thing, even though they are talking about the same topic, right? So, um, how, do you find that the methods that you use capture these little differences?
1: I'm or-
2: not sure if we've actually looked at that sort of thing, have we, Kasra? Uh No,
3: no, we uh, we only so 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 what we did was uh, only focusing on the time as the uh, as I mean the the uh, paper that we just talked about. Uh, in that we first trained a model on the whole data set and then fine-tuned or further tuned that model on different per- periods of time.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And then we started to compare it with, with that main or let's say big language model that we trained in the beginning. Uh, and, and those were the changes that we saw from men and prisoners to machines and engine. But we have not looked at all, all those details that you said, now.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, but it's, it, well, the thing that B was just saying, uh, what what it makes me think of is that um, whatever it is you're sort of looking at in the research um, is still because you're you're analysing something that is very human in terms of like language. When it comes to these newspapers, um, your interpretation of it um, is still very much based on you as a person. As you were just saying, Dave, with the word melancholy, um, it sort of probably doesn't have quite the same meaning for us as it did for them back then. Um, I was actually just thinking when you were saying that, that the fact that they were using uh, that word to describe accidents that seem really tragic to us probably reflects that they might have happened a lot more frequently than they do now. And then like now we're like, wow, you know, if someone, you know, dies in a car crash, then you're like, that's an absolute tragedy, you know? But if someone got killed by some, you know, run down <laughs> by a horse and cart back in the day or uh, or even by you know you know any kind of death just in in, in you know by uh, physical means as opposed to disease or something it would have been a lot more common i guess so um it's you know it's a, it's a melancholy instance
2: <laughs> yeah you're quite right it's all about context yeah. um but everything is you know i think a lot of data that we capture outside of the humanities is about context too um, and it's just, you know, one thing that I ask people to do is sort of stop and pause and do you know your data? So, you know, I've seen wonderful studies that might be based upon, uh, I don't know, let's take TFL, for example, Transport for London. It has, it can make available data sets that show not just where people start and finish their journey, but their route through the tube network. And that's done by them collecting your phone as it tries to connect to the various Wi-Fi hotspots as you travel. And on the face of it, that data set is brilliant. It will let you understand how somebody goes from one tube station to another. But you need to stop and say, okay, well, does everybody carry a phone? Does everybody carry a Wi-Fi enabled phone? And then you begin to understand that you know, your data set isn't representative. You're missing, let's say, the elderly and the very young and maybe they're the ones that actually you need to spend more attention on because they need they have special needs or additional needs so yeah what i like about humanities things is you can you can explain that in the data you can say okay the people have got different perspectives you will see political viewpoint in today's press it's no different and we just need to be very aware of the context in which these things were written and and the audience in which they were sort of meant to um attract
1: nice um, yeah so so i think you, you've mentioned one of the bits of research um Caswell there that um you've been working on which i think did you call it um the paper did you call it about um uh, animate objects yes okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i guess that <laughs> just means uh i don't know yeah what how do you define the word anim- animate objects i guess something that hasn't m- moving parts like a machine?
3: Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Uh, uh, and it was actually one of the challenges in the beginning of, the, of this project that how do we even uh, define right. animacy? Uh, the way that you're doing it in this paper is it's more close to human. So if it's, uh, refer- I mean, if, for, for example, in that sentence that they said, if we can't um, complete the sentence using, uh, let's say human-related words, then we would say that's that's an animate uh, animate word. So, so machine is in the place of an animate object. So so we we redefine basically the animacy in that way. But I guess it's I mean there were lots of uh, discussions uh, uh, among our historians and linguists <laughs> on how to define even animacy. I think this is a uh, you
1: know discussions of. Um... The definitions of word is something that we're no strangers to in the world of data science computing either you, you take a, a phrase like artificial intelligence and you know what does that mean exactly um there could be lots of definitions um we're going to be recording a podcast on that exact topic with uh, one of our colleagues uh soon so <laughs> stay tuned uh, podcast listeners um <laughs> but um what i was going to ask Casra and dave was um uh in addition to the, the animacy work? And what are some of the other things that, that you guys have been working on as members of the research engineering group, um, as the data scientists and software engineers who are interacting with the historians and other researchers in living machines?
3: Uh, so I would say our, our role as research engineers in the living machines project has uh, different flavors. So. Uh, one of them, like the animacy paper or the computer vision work, is about designing the algorithms, designing the methods and apply them to the data set. And the other part is about working on the infrastructure. And Dave is actually leading that part. So Dave, if you want to say a few words about that.
2: Yeah, I'm very happy to. Um, I'll also stress, we are involved. There's not a sort of uh, subservient relationship at all <laughs> going on here, um, as, as there can be um you're not being told what to do by bossy history professors
1: no um or librarians
2: (laughs) no um (laughs) well well, yes but then we fight back and we tell them what we can do with the computer Um, (laughs) but it is it's it's actually really exciting because you know people can have bright ideas and and you know from a technical point of view we can look at it and say "Nah, that's never going to work but have you considered doing this with it And then that sort of eggs on the research in in the sort of more humanities disciplines and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, we can do something with that. And I think that's that, that kind of game of ping pong and always egging the other party on. It's very time consuming, but it's so engaging. And I think that's one of the happiest bits. When I see that happen in the project, I know it's consumed a lot of energy. But it's amazing. It's heartwarming to see that kind of collaboration. And that's what makes us do what we do. Um, So, yeah, you've had me rant on about the sort of idea of representativeness and bias. And I think knowing your data is so fundamental to this project that, that that's where a lot of my initial time and effort, along with Kasper von Bielen, has been in sort of doing this environmental scan, if you like. So... There's the digital data that we have access to from the newspapers. That is only a couple of percent of all of the newspapers that the British Library hold. And then even wider were all the newspapers that were ever published. So we ought to understand, if not you know, computationally balance out, the biases that are inherent in there. And some of it is due to the way that the newspapers were selected for digitization. Mm. And that can have all sorts of knock-on effects in terms of curatorial processes. So the kind of radical press, the, the more working class press, um, was lit, physically printed on cheaper, news, pe- cheaper paper, cheaper right. newspaper. It sold at a cheaper price point than the more elite in society. Um, so it hasn't preserved as well and it's degraded and that means it hasn't always been a good candidate for some of the physical and mechanical processes of digi- mass digitization where the you know a machine is flipping pages and imaging right. them and then then we read them so we, we're already out of balance there we don't have digital facsimile of all of those nuanced bits and a lot of the early work has been and is still continuing to look at how representative the sample we've got is of the whole and being able to expand that to things like price point as a kind of proxy for social class, um, geography, um, political viewpoint. So there's this wonderful things called uh, Mitchell's Press Directories, which were designed to help you you've got a product that you want to advertise. You want to put your advert in the newspaper. Let's hope it's not a sewing machine this time because there's loads of sewing machine adverts. Um, you want to select your newspaper. So they all kind of like, there's this little handbook published every year that says, you know, this particular newspaper covers this area, costs this amount and has this kind of political leaning. So you can target your advert to the right demography. So we're taking that information and joining it together with what we know about the whole newspaper scene. So we can begin to understand what we have of the different political leanings and things like that and the coverage across the UK. And that's so important because anything that we base, you know, the work that Kazra was talking about on the language, we need to understand that source data and where it represents, -represents, over-represents, under-represents particular um, intersectional um, parts of society. And if we don't do that, then we will be able to make conclusions, but they won't well, really stand up. It's also, to be fair,
1: it's going to, it's still going to be only whoever was writing a newspaper at the time, I guess, which is well, quite right, most quite people not right. been. I mean, yeah. uh, I, yeah, I, I, and I suppose I don't know um, at what point, like, we got to to like ninety nine percent plus literate in the country, but presumably at some point in the 19th, in the nineteenth century, uh, that wasn't the case. <laughs>
2: Right. <laughs> I've got a funny feeling literacy rates are surprisingly high, but uh, yeah. I mean that not not the research software engineer question, Ed. I'll have to defer <laughs> to my yeah, my sorry. my radically collaborative colleagues for, for a definitive answer on that.
1: <laughs> well, in any case, uh, even if people were literate and had some education in reading, I can imagine that obviously a lot of people won't have been reading newspapers. Or writing newspapers, um, and there would have been a lot of people in society who would have been certainly not represented in the, the kind of things that were written in newspapers. Um, but I was going to ask a sort of related question there, which is, um, you mentioned that the one of the sort of limiting factors could be, you know, what of the newspaper collection actually gets scanned and what is possible to scan. Um, but so this newspaper collection is, um, because this project is in collaboration with the British Library, um, the British Library has actually done a good job over the years of collecting um, newspapers and books and, and and magazines and other things. And when I did a tour of the library, they they told me that they collect, they have like everything that's published in the UK. Um, I don't know how, how far back this goes, but they have like at least one copy of every book, every newspaper, every magazine. And the, the guy who sh- was showing me around was em- would emphasize and they have every kind of magazine you can think of, um, <laughs> at least one copy. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I, so, the, so it's interesting that, that that aspect of it may not have been a limiting factor in that the library has actually done a really good job of like collecting all these newspapers. It's just that some of them would have been on like, very cheap paper and (laughs) degraded to the point where we can't scan them and digitize
2: them. Yeah, the the British Library is an amazing institution. And what you've just described is called legal deposit. Um, Uh And it even nowadays covers UK web pages, for instance. Right. So it is their duty. And I think, I can't remember, there's maybe three or four legal deposit libraries in the UK. Maybe each nation has one. Um, But yes, there's a difference between holding it and it even being accessible in person. So the British Newspaper Archive is accessible on-site in London and through the web if you um, want to subscribe, and that typically costs money. So there is, it's not as democratised as it first sounds, and we're very fortunate to be working with the British newspaper archive and the British library. But actually, that does make some of our research harder to reproduce. So if you're listening at home and you're thinking, I want to get into this, I've got a 25 terabyte hard disk drive under my sofa. Let's go for it. Um, It's a little bit harder for you to do. You can't just download it. So you know, one thing that I would like our outputs to be is as well described as possible so if people can access it they can kind of add on our enhancements but also work to the point where we can create maybe more uh aggregated outputs that uh don't give away the exact content but like the language model Casra was describing can we put forward what we might call n-grams in computational linguistics so just either word counts the number of It can be very simple as the word frequencies, the number of times a word occurs in a year. Can we publish that? Then can we publish, you know, pairs of words and threes and things? And the N is up to whatever number you would like. So there must be a point, hopefully, where we can begin to get some of that data circulating um, a bit more publicly in the research environment. But we will work with them. Um, They've got their commercial interests to protect. Fair enough,
1: fair enough. On that note let me ask you um sort of uh, a final question then like um what what's the future of the living with machines project um what are you guys still doing on uh in in the project yourselves um and and where is this all going like where's the future of this kind of um digital humanities research and living with machines in particular
2: oh that's a good question i mean i think our Our future is to embed the humanities in data science and AI as much as possible. So that means making people pause, not just about the ethics of things, but about those different perspectives, what it means to have missing data and things like that. And that connects with, you know, important topics already existing, but the humanities have got more to add there. So I think, you know, our future is to kind of embed and extend and, um, in terms of big projects, I think some have argued living with the machines is a moonshot, and they don't come along all the time. And we've got plenty of wonderful spin-off ideas that we can't possibly tell you until we get funded. But, you know, we've, we've got great ideas. Um, you know, we're here to stay as a group of people. And the Turing has been amazing in giving us space to develop this project and, you know, to encourage more humanities. It is a strategic project. Uh, it is a strategic priority, and I'm glad we've been able to do that. But also, we need to work with uh, you know our colleagues in digital humanities and humanities to make sure that others can reproduce research at the level that we have. So we're mm-hmm. so fortunate to be at the Turing to have access to high-performance computing, to skilled people, to curators that understand the nuances of the data. Regular scholars don't necessarily have that. So what does the UK, what do funders need to do to make access to that much easier so researchers that have bright ideas can go off and do it? That's what I want to see.
1: Nice. Uh, Actually, maybe I'll ask one more sort of follow-up from that, which is that um, maybe because you described it as a sort of moonshot project at the moment and it's kind of, early days in this kind of field of research. Maybe it's too early to ask this kind of question, but what are the kind of things that you would like this research into the industrial revolution to inform about how we think about the world today that we might've like not really thought about so much before doing this kind of big data, digital humanities research?
0: Bringing back sewing machines. (laughs)
1: putting out more sewing machine ads
2: yeah yeah old school cookies (laughs) (laughs) I, i think it's consequences right so you know what we're seeing so many troubles in in the world to do with the environment to do with humanity's desperate need for technology for travel you name it um i think actually we have the opportunity with the quantity of data that we've got that you could sort of basically take a time machine you can type in where you were born uh where you live the things that you're interested in and we could find a, somebody with a profile like that in the newspapers and can we find them in the census and then we can can we show you what your 100 year ago 150 year ago self could have been doing and what happened what happened to the world around you and would that make you think twice about what you do now and the world that will all inhabit in a hundred years' time. So I think it's that sort of cautionary lesson. I like that. I like that idea. Um, maybe that's a spin-off. I don't know. I'm making it up as I'm going along.
1: Uh, a cautionary lesson sounds like a, a a good thing to come out of research. I think.
0: <laughs> I have to say that that thought is terrifying. I think <laughs> myself a hundred years ago would not be happy. i'm not allowed to read as much
1: (laughs) yeah i don't think many of us would 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 like to live a hundred years ago (laughs) compared to now (laughs) if we're honest (laughs) Kazra, do you have something to add there uh
3: yeah i I guess to add to what dave said it was quite interesting to look at it at the individual level but uh from my side i would like to see how um the mass of people, like more than one, but like in the, at the level of community, at the level of village, or even like a small part of a city, uh, they uh, reacted to the industrial revolution. And uh, whether we can generalize some of those concepts to the uh, modern days. And um, I guess that that would be also quite interesting for me that I, I particularly if you combine these. So what they've said at the individual level to probe that person, what you would do hundred years ago, and combine it with like the larger populations so or massive people.
2: Because let's face so it, we do have an AI revolution coming, and what is that going to mean? Good point. I like that. <laughs> On that bombshell.
0: <laughs> All the science fiction starting.
1: <laughs> Listen, uh, um, when it comes to sci-fi versions of AI, um, I don't think anyone's come up with the idea of. This uh, AI tells you what your life would be like if you lived 100 years ago. <laughs> Which is quite a nice storytelling AI robot, you know. quite quite, quite a fun film. I think. Not very action-packed, but... <laughs> um, all right, well, um, Dave and Kasra, on that note, thanks, for very, thanks very much for coming on the During podcast. It's been, it's been lovely
2: having you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And Thank you.
0: before we go, can you tell the listeners... How, can they, how and where they can find you and contact you if they want to know how they were 100 years ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and where can they find Living With Machines uh, and more information about it online?
2: Yes, if you really, really like your Victorian sewing machine adverts or anything <laughs> else that you've heard so far today, uh, trot along to www.livingwithmachines.ac.uk and there you will find links to our wonderful blog, uh, which sort of breaks down some of the things we've been talking about, and also follow us on Twitter. You'll find the link there. But it's living with machines because living with machines is a bit too long for the Twitter cyborg.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The Turing Podcast is produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. The show is hosted by me, B Costa Gomes, Ed Calstree, Joe Dungate. Christina Last and Anika York. Music for this podcast is produced by Jam and Sun. You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram.